Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. We are continuing today our series on Hebrews. Today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. You can find this on page 1002 in the Pew Bibles, or if you have one of the red Pew Bibles, the larger print, it's on page 1189. As you turn there, I want to remind you of a few things. I want to thank you uh, for um, your patience with us as we went on vacation. I heard great things about both Mike Rasmussen and uh, Dana Blair, and I'm encouraged that the Lord brought his word to you while we were gone. Pray that uh, we will continue to pursue that. Be encouraged by what it is that they taught us. Also want to remind you that today, after worship, we have our family meal. If you didn't bring any food, that's okay. We've never run out. So please stay and fellowship with us. Take the opportunity to get to know Karen, to ask questions about Coming Home Ministries and Hope Link and how you can pray and how you can serve. Stay with us for our family meal. Also want to remind you that next Sunday after church for about 45 minutes or an hour, we're going to have a short evangelism training. This will be an opportunity to just have a tool in our belt, uh, a way for us to uh, know how to engage with people. It'll be similar to the last training, but with some new information as well. And finally, I want to let you know that on August 30th, uh, in about, I guess, this week, uh, our evening women's Bible study is beginning on Wednesday, August 30th, and that'll be at 7 p.m., is that right? 7 p.m., yes. So, if you are interested in coming to the evening women's Bible study, please come on August 30th at 7 p.m. Now that you've had a chance to turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
Father, we pray that you would help us as we dive into this word, help us to understand what the author is trying to convey both to his readers and to us. Help us to hide the truths of the gospel that we see in our heart, that we may take comfort in times of struggle. And Father, help us to go out from here being encouraged to live out this text. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Arguably, one of the greatest stories of all time is the Lord of the Rings. In the Lord of the Rings, we see that in the previous ages, there had been corruption, where people fell prey to temptation. We saw in the current age in the story, as it goes along, the continual warnings to avoid that same temptation. We saw that group that we followed through the story, the fellowship, encouraging one another. And in the darkest and hardest of times, we saw the weak being carried. It's been said that Tolkien considers Samwise Gamgee to be the true hero of the Lord of the Rings. The flashy one is Gandalf, the one who can do amazing things. The ring bearer is Frodo, but it is Samwise, the stalwart friend who Tolkien considered to be the real hero. He was the one who was steadfast in his support. He was the one who was unwavering in his resolve. And he was the one who was willing to carry others when they struggled. The idea of a hero is that that is what we want to be to others. We all need someone like Samwise Gamgee in our lives, and sometimes we need to be Samwise for others. So as the author of Hebrews continues to teach his audience how Jesus is better, he takes time out. He already's done it once, and now he does it again to send a warning to help us to see that we have to be persistent. So today, as we look at verses 7 through 19 in chapter 3, we're going to see three things. Number one, we're going to see the rebellion in verses 7 through 11. Number two, we're going to see how the author warns his audience in verse 12, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. And number three, we're going to see the encouragement that he brings to his audience in verses 13 and 14. So let's start by looking at the rebellion in verses 7 through 11. Now, before we dive into 7 through 11 and Psalm 93, which is what that long quotation is from, let's remind ourselves of where we are. So far in the book of Hebrews, we've seen that Christ is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. We've also seen that Jesus is the Son of God, creator of all things, and the one through whom, through whom we have salvation. And the author has also warned us about neglecting this gift of salvation. In the first six verses of chapter 3, which we covered a few weeks ago, it stresses how Jesus is better than Moses. You remember we talked about how Moses was one of the heroes of the Israelite people. So to say Jesus is better than Moses is significant. That text talked about how Moses was a wonderful 
person of God, but that Jesus was even better than Moses. And now this text is going to build off of 1 through 6. It's going to build off of 1 through 6 and the call to hold fast to our confidence and boasting in our hope. Look at verse 6 with me. As he ended this Jesus is greater than Moses section in verses 1 through 6, he said, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So that's the last thing he said. And now in verse 7, he's going to say, therefore, which goes right back to that. So we're building off of what's come before. This text is going to draw us to look into eternity and how the gospel impacts that. How important it is that we continue to pursue the Lord. So, With Moses in mind, from verses 1 through 6, the author of this book brings us a warning in 7 through 19 from the time of Moses. I find that interesting that we talk about how Jesus is better than Moses, and then Psalm 95 refers to something that happened in Moses' time. Before we dive in, it's, it's important that we remember that these warnings have a place in Scripture and have a place in the preaching of God's church. Warnings call unbelievers to faith, reminding them of who Jesus is and calling them into faith, into that great hope. And warnings help believers to fix their eyes on Jesus. One commentator says this, Addressing us as responsible human beings, warning, exhortation, encouragement, and other elements of proclamation are used in the Holy Spirit's hand to fix the believer's gaze on Jesus in ways that do not in the least contradict the gospel and the certainty of death, warning spurs on the hearts of true believers to greater faith and deeper commitment to the truth of God's word and to a resolute determination to continue toward the heavenly city. So warnings are given to us in Scripture as a gift from the Lord, drawing us back into the focus on Jesus. And remember, the setting of this is that the original audience were believing Jews who were struggling. We know from chapter 10, they're in the midst of persecution. They're in the midst of suffering. They're in the midst of struggling, and they're tempted to go astray. They're tempted to to turn away from this faith. And so these warnings that are all throughout Hebrews are to draw them back into Jesus, to help them not turn away, and to bring them back to the gospel. So let's dive into the text. Verse 7 starts with, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, I've said this before. Anytime you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what is it there for? Right? So I've already said this. The therefore here connects us back to verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, because we've already started talking about Moses, and now we're going to give a story from Moses' time. But it also connects us to everything that's already been said. So we can't forget that Jesus is better, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Creator, that through Jesus we have salvation. And because of those things, the author is now sending a warning. Jesus is better He's saying, I love you so much that you need to remember that Jesus is better than whatever you're going to turn to. And he connects what he's talked about with this warning. So that's our therefore. And then look at those next few words. As the Holy Spirit says. 
as the Holy Spirit says. Now, we're getting ready to quote Psalm 95, so we're quoting Scripture, but the author of Hebrews is saying that this is what the Holy Spirit has said. Psalm 95 is what the Holy Spirit has said. This not only emphasizes and reminds us of God's role in writing Scripture through his authors. Remember 2 Timothy 3? All Scripture is God-breathed. But it also reminds us that God is speaking through his word to us. The author wants to make sure that his audience remembers that this is God's word. This isn't something that I'm suggesting that you can just throw off and ignore. This is God's word, as the Holy Spirit says. And really, we should hear that and think about all of Scripture, not just what he's about to say, but all of Scripture One commentator, David McWilliams, says, Do you read the scriptures this way? Do you read them in faith, applying the precious words of the text to your own heart and circumstances? Having determined the historical setting and understood when the Lord said to his ancient professing people, does your heart leap out towards the Lord crying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This is such a beautiful little phrase because it reminds us once again that the Word of God is living and active and for us. And so verses 7 through 11 begin by connecting to everything he said so far and reminding us that the Word of God is the Word of God. And so then the author quotes from Psalm 95. I'm going to read Psalm 95. It's only 11 verses. It's a song of praise But it reminds us of why we have reasons to pray. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The height of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore my wrath that they shall not enter my rest." And remember, anytime we see a New Testament author quote anywhere else in Scripture, we need to go back to that section of text and find out what is the point of that text. And if we didn't do that here, we would have thought that the point of Psalm 95 was just all warning and, and direness. But Psalm 95 is a song of praise. Behold, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. He is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. So the psalmist is calling us to praise, is calling us to rejoice. And at the end, warning us of what has happened in the past, warning us against what happened with the wilderness generation. Hebrews references Psalm 95. Psalm 95 references Numbers 13 and 14. If you remember Numbers 13 and 14, the people are standing at the precipice of the promised land. 
And they send in 12 spies, one from each tribe. And the spies walk all through the land, seeing that it is a land filled with milk and honey, a land that God has promised to them. And they come back and they report to the people, and 10 of the spies say, yeah, it's a land filled with milk and honey, but there are giants in the land. We can't do this. We can't handle them. And two of them say, it's a land filled with milk and honey that the Lord has promised to us. We can do this. He is with us. And the people listen to the ten and not the two. The people listen to those discouraging them away from the Lord at Kadesh. Not the two who say, this is the promise of God. Let's trust him and move in. God's people listened to the ten spies and did not trust the Lord. And so they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And that generation did not get to see the promised land. Interestingly, the the number 40 uh, represents in the Old Testament one whole generation. So that generation that listened to those ten spies wandered in the desert, and once all of them were gone, except for the two who trusted the Lord, then the people could enter into the promised land. And God swore to those who did not trust him, you shall not enter my rest. That's what happened in Hebrews 13 and 14. That's what the psalmist is warning us away from. Praise the Lord. Glorify the Lord. Honor the Lord. He is the rock of our salvation. He is our God, and we are his people. Don't be like those who listened to the ten spies and didn't trust in God. That's the message of the psalmist. And so here the author of Hebrews, going back to Psalm 95, going back to Numbers 13, is trying to remind the worn-out Hebrews, the exhausted Hebrews, the persecuted Hebrews, that the easy way is to listen to the ten spies and not go into the land because that would be hard. But that the way that glorifies the Lord is to trust him. The author of Hebrews is giving this warning to those who are tempted to turn away and saying, don't follow the rebellion. Don't follow the rebellion of the wilderness generation. Trust in the Lord. Yes, times are hard. Yes, you are being persecuted. But trust in the Lord. By quoting Psalm 95, the author is not only warning, but he's also reminding them of why that warning comes. Because if they don't heed that warning, they don't receive the first part of Psalm 95, the joy that comes in the Lord. He's saying, I know you. I love you. I know you are hurting. I know you're being persecuted. And I know you're being tempted to turn away. But don't. Trust in the Lord. Look out. Look at what the rebellious wilderness generation missed out on because they didn't trust in the Lord and trust in his name. So that's the rebellion that the author draws out in verses 7 through 11. And then in verse 12 and 15 through 19, he brings a warning. So let's take a look at that warning. First, in verse 12, we see this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Therefore, connected to everything from before, as the Holy Spirit says, this is the word of God. Don't fall away like the wilderness generation. 
Rejoice in the Lord instead. Now, you, my readers, make sure that you are not having an unbelieving heart. The author wants his audience to take Psalm 95 and its warning seriously. He starts by saying, brothers, he reminds them, they are a part of a family. They're not individuals. They're a part of the body of God. Be with the Lord. And he says, take care. Take care is not a one-time thing. In, in verbs, <clears throat> verb usage, there are the single things, you know, hey, here's a single command. Um, go brush your teeth. And then there are ongoing commands, things that we want people to keep doing. We don't want to brush our teeth just once. Brush your teeth every day. Take care every day. Have vigilance every day so that you don't fall prey to unbelief. In Psalm 95, we saw the result of the unbelief of a few spies and how it infected the whole generation and how the Lord kept them out of his rest. And the author now is saying, take care, have constant vigilance, not to let the unbelief of a few turn you from the Lord. Don't let the unbelief of a few destroy your faith. Trust in the Lord. Here in this context, unbelief encompasses disobedience. It's both the refusal to trust in God and the lack of faithfulness to God. And this phrase Fall away, take care, brothers, lest any of you uh, have an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away. Fall away means active rebellion against the Lord. An unbelieving heart is what leads to people falling away, which is active rebellion. And this goes back to Psalm 95. Don't harden your hearts in rebellion in the same way that that wilderness generation did. O. Palmer Robertson says this, a hardening of the heart by the people of the new covenant will have a devastating effect on God's people today as it did for the original wilderness generation. The author is saying, take care. Be vigilant. Don't let your hearts be hardened and beware of others' hearts being hardened, turning you against the Lord. It only took 10 spies for that whole generation to not trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Pursue the Lord. Run to the Lord. Many of the commentators that I was reading talk about what does this hardness of heart look like? What does this um, look like today? And often it works like this. Sin deceives us. Sin makes us think that something is better. Something is better than God. And once sin has deceived us and we begin to sin, then sin hardens our hearts. Yeah, maybe I wasn't supposed to do that, but I really enjoyed that sin, or, or you know, God didn't strike me down, or whatever the case may be, sin hardens our hearts. Sin deceives, sin hardens our hearts, and then it leaves the sinner in darkness. We're left like, I don't know what to do. My sin is not satisfying me because only God can satisfy And so when we fall prey to that, if we're not careful and we're not being constantly vigilant, we fall into darkness. The wilderness generation fell away because of the belief or the unbelief of a few, which led to the exasperation of the unbelief of the many. 
And we know that the many had unbelief because we saw signs of it. Idolatry, selfishness, complaining, all those are evidences of it. When you go back and you read Moses' wandering to get to the promised land, even before the 40 years of the wilderness generation, the people are not great travel companions. Almost as soon as they have this miraculous salvation from the Egyptian army, they start to complain. Well, Egypt had meat. How come we can't have any water? I want to go back. I really liked that spicy food that they had there. All they did was complain. And they didn't believe. And then what happens when Moses goes up on Sinai? They create the golden calf. One of my favorite parts of that story is where Aaron says, I just came out fully formed from the fire. I'm like, how can somebody even say that? And so the wilderness generation was filled with idolatry, selfishness, and complaining. And so they easily fell to the unbelief of the ten spies. But today, we don't see a lot of golden calves. We don't have any golden calves up here, per se. But that unbelief often represents itself in self-righteousness clinging to our own goodness our own righteousness our own rightness which is crazy because we're not righteous at all without christ and yet we run to that we cling to that we want to be righteous we want to be on our own throne we want to be the ones in control we want to be the ones that are right that's our constant temptation mcwilliams says one of the greatest problems Our greatest problems are not those things that are outside of us, our circumstances, the way we've been treated, but instead our own smug self-righteousness that comes from within. And so in verse 12, the author is saying, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Watch out. Constant vigilance. Regular checking with the word. If you think something is wrong, go to the word. Paul uh, exhorts and praises the Bereans because as soon as he taught, they would go back to the word and make sure that what he said was true. And then this warning continues in verses 15 through 18 with a repetition of this concept of today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebe- as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? He goes on and asks a number of rhetorical questions. And the point of those questions, the point of this section in 15 through 18, is to wake us up out of our self-righteousness and to drive us to Christ alone. He says that those who fell away weren't like strange outside outliers. He says they're the ones who walk through the water with Moses. They're the ones who came out of slavery led by Moses. They're the ones who were provided for by God. And they still did not trust him. He uses rhetorical questions to continue to drive us to Christ and Christ alone. Our righteousness will get us nothing. We have to trust in Christ's righteousness. And then in verse 19, he says, So we see that we were unable to enter, that they were unable to enter because of their belief. Those in the wilderness generation who rebelled and listened to the ten spies were unable to enter into the promised land because of their unbelief. 
God says it's because of your hearts. Their hearts were hard against him. And so the author of Hebrews is calling his audience and us through this text to let go of anything that we're clinging to, to let go of anything that we're going to for comfort and joy and satisfaction except for God. Let go of our sin and run to God. Let go of our comfort and run to God. That's not to say we should all put on sackcloths and stand outside the church. But if there are things that we are trusting instead of God, let go of those things. Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 14 and 15 say, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The rebellion generation was living for themselves, believing the unbelief of the ten spies. And the author of Hebrews is reminding us don't trust in yourself. He's warning us not to fall prey to the temptations of self-righteousness. But he doesn't just warn us. He shows us rebellion and he warns us and then he also encourages us. Look at verses 13 and 14. So if we're told what we're not supposed to do in verse 12 and then 15 through 19, what are we supposed to do? But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In this context of warning, in this context of reminding us of what happened in Psalm 95, the author also wants to bring encouragement. He calls his readers to live as a family. Remember, he addressed them as brothers. And here, he says the antidote to a heart of unbelief is to be a family that encourages and exhorts one another daily. And he emphasizes this. He doesn't just say today because it was in the text. Look at verse 7 and then verse 15. It says, today if you hear his voice, today if you hear his voice. He's emphasizing today on purpose because he wants us to realize this is a sense of urgency. This is something we need to do every single day. So verse uh, 7 and verse 15, quote from chapter, Psalm 95, but here in verse 14, today is separate. It brings a sense of urgency. A faithful walk does not happen alone. Every single day we need to be encouraging and challenging and loving and praying for and lifting up one another. It's God's design that we understand the importance of the communion of the saints. That we understand the importance of being a body who loves the Lord. One commentator challenges us like this. Each believer should ask himself, am I exhorting my brothers to walk faithfully? Or am I more likely, or am I more like those who incite rebellion and unbelief? And so the author has given us contrasting examples. In Psalm 95, he gives us the example of the generation that ran away. 
the generation that fell prey to the temptation of unbelief. And in verse 13, he exhorts us to encourage one another so that we won't fall away. These are two opposite choices. And he's encouraging us to love each other so much that we exhort and encourage one another daily. This comes in many forms. Uh, Sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's not. It might be a willingness to forgive, show compassion, or to confront people with grace. It might be a willingness to cheer others on. It may be sending letters or emails or phone calls or texts or prayer requests or doing kind words or deeds. Whatever the case may be, we're called to exhort and encourage one another daily. For us as believers to reap the benefits of the privileges of faith, It's necessary to have mutual concern for one another so that we can endure in the faith. You want to stay strong? Encourage one another. Be encouraged by one another. Make sure that your hearts aren't running towards unbelief. This word exhort in the original language in Greek is very comprehensive. It means it's an entreaty, it's an admonition, it's an exhortation, it's an encouragement, it's a comfort. It's very complete. Very comprehensive. And again, this exhortation is essential. The author says, exhort one another in the Lord once a year. No. The author says, exhort one another in the Lord every day. Because of the supremacy of Christ. Remember that therefore, Jesus is better the angels, the prophets, then Moses. He's the creator of all things, the reason we have salvation. Because of the supremacy of Christ, because Jesus is better, and because of our position in him as sons and daughters of the king, we are called to exhort one another, because that exhortation will not be in vain. Turn forward to Hebrews chapter 10. Should be just a couple of pages forward. We're going to get to this. I'm not skipping ahead. Call this a spoiler alert. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, we read this. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews is going to come back to this again and again. Exhort one another. We are a family. Often because of our sin, we're dysfunctional. And think about family. The people who hurt us the most are our family. But we're a family. A family of faith. A family of God. And we're called to love one another so much that we exhort and encourage one another every day. So the author says, because of who Jesus is, listen to God's word. Listen to the warning that comes in Psalm 95 and the rebellion and unbelief of the hearts that are being addressed in Psalm 95. Take heed of the warning that I am warning you. Don't fall prey to unbelief is what the author says. And encourage one another in the faith every single day. As we consider what the author is commanding us to do, because these are imperatives, that means they're commands, they're not suggestions, it can feel hard. I mean, after all, temptation's all around us. 
Unbelief is easy. The desire to pursue the things of this world is abundant. And let's face it, as much as we are a family, some people are just not easy to talk to. So what do we do? Do we, do we try harder? Do we just give up? No. We listen to the commands of the Lord. It was interesting. I was talking to another pastor this week, and he showed me what uh, his professor in college called the five points of true Calvinism. Okay? Now, I, this is what he said. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just, just clarifying. This is what his professor said. The five points of true Calvinism. Number one, by the way, take notes on these because these are great. Number one, I must. The Bible is filled with commands, and we must obey any command of God. Number two, I cannot. On my own power, I cannot obey. I have to, but I can't. Number three, I thirst. When we're in the Word, when we're pursuing the Lord, we want to obey. The gospel is so glorious and gracious and something that we don't deserve. And as we understand what it is and as our thankfulness grows, we want to obey God's commands. We want to obey with God's grace. I must, I cannot, I thirst. And number four, I cast. I cast myself in faith on the mercy of God for the strength to obey. You cannot obey in your own power. We've said this over and over again throughout Mark, all the way throughout Hebrew. It's, it's not like we're saying, hey, do this. We can't do this on our own. We have to have the power of the Lord. And so while I must obey, I cannot obey. I thirst to obey, so I cast myself on the Lord. And number five, I shine. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, as he shows up in new obedience, I am able to do what the Lord commands. I must obey. I cannot obey. I thirst to obey. I cast myself on the Lord so that I can obey, and I shine when the Holy Spirit shows up. This runs throughout Scripture. This runs throughout Calvin's theology, which is one of the reasons why the professor said this is the five points of true Calvinism. So when we see the imperatives like this, when we see these commands to not only watch out, but to encourage and exhort one another. We want to do those things. We must do those things, but we can't do that on our own. And so we thirst, we cast, and we shine. Only through the power of the Lord working through us, when the Holy Spirit shows up, can we do these things. But that's not limited. When you cast yourself on the Lord, you don't have to have been perfect this last week for the Holy Spirit to show up and work in and through you. The Spirit will be at work within you. What a great way to summarize how to obey the Lord's commands. I must obey. I cannot obey. I thirst to obey. I cast myself in faith on the mercy of God for the strength to obey, and I shine when the Holy Spirit shows up so that I can obey. In the Lord of the Rings, we saw that people have fallen prey to temptation in the past, and the fellowship is warned of this. The fellowship also has to encourage and exhort one another in order to make it through. 
culminating in Sam carrying Frodo to Mount Doom. So as we go out, we're called to remember the message of this text. We're called to remember that rebellion is easy. We're called to remember that we have been warned not to fall prey to that rebellion. And we're called to remember to exhort one another. Encourage each other every day so that none of us may fall and instead grow closer and closer to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a challenge it is to think about this text. Your people who you brought out of slavery, miraculously saved, who watched the ten plagues, who, saw, who walked through the Red Sea, who saw you defeat their enemies. After years of wandering, arrive at the promised land and don't believe. We don't get to see plagues. We don't get to see the parting of the Red Sea. And yet we're called to obey. We're called to trust. We're called to believe. And so, Father, we pray that we would heed this text. We would heed the rebellion that is warned about through Psalm 95. We would heed the warning of the author to not harbor unbelief. And we would heed the exhortation to love one another each and every day, reminding ourselves that we must obey these commands that are given. We cannot obey these commands on our own power. We thirst to obey these commands because they are yours. And so we cast ourselves in faith on the mercy of you for the strength to obey. And then we shine. And the Holy Spirit shows up and gives us that strength. Father, be with us as we go out from here, reminding us of the rebellion, the warning, and the exhortation that you gave us in this text. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.